the group start up in late September, early October. So if you're interested in being a part of a small group, if you could sign up today, that would be ideal because what I'd like to do this week is kind of gather everybody into groups and kind of see if we can get people plugged into a group during a, uh, a, 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 a kind of a slot that works for them and then notify people so that the groups can start meeting either next week or the week after. So uh, please remember to do that after the service. I'll remind you after the benediction to go and sign up, but it's just on the tables out there. Also, Summit Newsletter. We send out a newsletter every Friday. If you want that, you can come and talk to me or you can sign up by emailing nelsoncovenant at gmail.com and saying, I want to sign up for the newsletter. I want to get it. We send something out every Friday. It has, especially this time of year, there's a tremendous amount of information in those of ways that you can get involved, heart, soul, mind, and strength in and through our community. More than we can highlight on a Sunday, but there's awesome stuff. So please be reading through that. There's some seasons of the year where um, not too much changes week over week, but especially the fall season, a lot gets added and a lot does change. And so we can't highlight everything on Sunday. The announcements would take like 30 minutes. So please be, be reading that. And also starting today, um, we are, um, this year for Sunday school, we're going to be challenging our grades sevens and up to stay in the service instead of going to their own class. And, and part of the reason for that is it's very difficult to find engaging good curriculum for that age group uh, for Sunday school uh, is one challenge. The second challenge, though, is I really believe that one of the mistakes the church has made is trying to create experiences that are custom-tailored to each generation starting at a young age. You have children's ministry for kids, you and your peers. Then you have junior high ministry for you and your junior high friends. Then you have... Uh, high school ministry for you and your high school friends, then you have young adults ministry for you and your young adults friends, and what can happen is certainly into the young adulthood, you can spend very little, if not hardly any time within the corporate gathered body of the church. Then when those programs end and you come into a church and your muscles aren't flexed to know how to worship with people Everyone in this room isn't my age. Everybody in this room doesn't have my same interests. Everyone in this room thinks differently and has different perspectives and sings different songs and the teaching's not totally custom-tailored to me. I'm out. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot today in the rise of the nuns or the rise of the people who are in the church until 18, 19, then leaving. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that as a church, we've trained people that church is about you and that somewhere in the early 20s, we say, I, actually, it's about God. It's not about you. People are like, well, it's been about me the whole time. It's been fun, pizza, hanging out with my friends. And there's a good part of that. But we believe that we have to help our young people grow up out of that. Now, we know it's a challenge because, again, some of the topics and some of the ways that I talk, it's not targeted for junior high and even for high school sometimes. But we also want to give you some incentive and some reward. So uh, starting this Sunday... Uh, what I'm going to invite you guys to do is if you can fill out the sermon notes that you get at the front, if you can fill out, there's some fill in the blanks there. If you can follow along and just be cognizant enough and, and be aware enough and be thinking through enough and saying, oh, there's a fill in the blank. I need to find that one. If you can fill that out, write your name and give it to me. I will put everybody's sermon notes in a little jar. And at the end of the month, I will draw, and I will give a little prize. 
And I've done this in churches in the past, and it's been really, really awesome. And sometimes the prizes are like candy. We've done other stuff. We've given gift certificates to um, an online Christian bookstore, and you can go and buy a book. There's lots of different things that we've done, but they're, they're like good prizes. It's not going to be like, oh, here's like a Tootsie Roll, and you're like, are you kidding me? Like, they're like good prizes. So there'll be one or two prizes given away every month, and uh, that's just our way of saying we recognize this as a challenge for you, and so we want to reward those who are making an effort. I will also give bonus prizes and bonus tickets to anybody who on somewhere, if you do like nice artistic little doodles, you're totally allowed to draw during my sermon. If you draw a picture of the actual content of the sermon, like today, Jesus walking in the water, might get bonus tickets. I'm already seeing some, this is not for you adults. Remember, we're talking about just the junior high students. I know. You can still... You can still doodle, you can still fill in the blank, you can st- that's totally fine. You can even show me after the service and I'll, that'd be great. Uh, but only our uh, junior high and, um, uh, I haven't th- really thought about high school students, but if high school want- students want to do it, that's totally fine too. But uh, we love you guys, but we also want to help you develop some strength and some muscles. So Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read through the passage, then I'm going to teach through it. I'm going to be reading from v- verse 45 to 52. Last week we looked at Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then Mark jumps right into this passage and you know Mark is on the move because he starts it with immediately. That word comes up again and again in Mark. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. After leaving them he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage at his eye, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Now, I did a a Google search this week. I just typed in, Jesus walks on the water. And if you Google search that, one of the things you're going to notice is on the first page of hits, I want to say 50%. I don't think it's 50%. It's close, though. Almost half of all the links are kids' story, Jesus walks on the water. Sunday school lesson, Jesus walks on the water. You you get some of the other studies, uh, other links, too, to like... Um, adult teachings on it. Um, but this is a fan favorite of Sunday schools, and certainly it is one of the key children's Bible stories that, we, that show up in every children's uh, devotional or Bible. And I think because of that, and especially if you have a long history in the church, it might be easy to come to this and think of it as kind of a cute children's story. Kind of like the feeding of the five sets. 5,000. Jesus provides a picnic out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's really nice. That shows that Jesus has power. Maybe it even shows that Jesus was God. That's, that's super great. And that's kind of where it's left. And I hope last week we realized, oh, there's a lot more going on there than we'd think. And it's very, very much the case with this one too. Usually, a staple in children's Bibles, this miracle and the encounter that it leads to actually forces the entire church, young and old, into some very, very grown-up reflections on faith and flourishing and risk-taking and what it means to follow Jesus. So let's go through the passage and see what it has for us this morning. 
Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's not going all the way across. It's going out into the middle and kind of going from west to north. Where, how are you looking? West to northeast. After leaving them, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. So again, we're seeing another thing that Jesus is doing. He's not always going with his disciples. He's now... Uh, transitioning them to start operating when he's not always present. You guys are going to get into the boat. You're going to go onto the lake. I'm going to go over here and pray. You, I'll meet you on ahead. So he's just beginning to train them to realize I'm not always going to be around. You're going to have to learn how to kind of navigate the waters of life when I'm not present. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So they've attempted to go northeast. They've hit a pretty strong headwind. You could argue a storm, certainly strong enough that the waves can't be overcome by sheer uh, manpower. Uh, they're kind of stuck. They're literally just, uh, they're not making any progress. They're just kind of treading water. They're just trying to get to where they're going. They're facing a headwind. And then it says, about the fourth watch of the night. That's the next thing that Mark says. Don't read over that too quickly. In the evening, the boat was in the middle of the lake. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus actually does something. Fourth watch of the night in Roman time is between three and six in the morning. Let's even just be really aggressive. I mean, evening for a Jewish person is sundown. So six, seven p.m. our time. So from seven p.m. till three in the morning... (laughs) These guys are rowing and going nowhere. That's a long time, right? I mean, think about that. You know, five minutes, one hour. Maybe they stop for a bit. Maybe they're taking turns. They're tired. They're sweaty. It's stormy. It's bad enough they can't get anywhere. Maybe they're anxious and hoping this doesn't get worse. Because, again, these guys don't have bronze medallion. They can swim in kind of shallow water. But you go down in the Sea of Galilee in a storm, you're going to die. They're in a little ship. This is not... um, This is not a safe environment. There's no life jackets. This is very, very threatening. And they've been at this for hours. So notice Jesus doesn't immediately go out to them. He lets them struggle against the wind for a number of hours. He's praying. They're struggling. Now, can you think of any reason why Jesus might make the decision to do that? Yeah, that's great. I think, I, think that, I, mean, that, I think that's totally it. I think in order to prepare him for their upcoming mission, to get them ready, this is part of training. And Jesus is saying, to prepare you for the task that I have for you, I can't constantly be immediately lifting you out of trouble and hardship. You've got to develop some muscles of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if I'm constantly rescuing you from the first sign of suffering... And, oh, this has been hard. It's been five minutes. How, how do they learn perseverance? How do they learn endurance? How do they learn uh, resolve of the will and trusting God and continuing to move forward even if it isn't easy? I think Jesus is training them for what lies ahead. This week at the gym, I had to complete a row test. It was a 1,000-meter row test, so 
1,000 meters for time. How fast can I move through 1,000 meters? It's really, really tough. You kind of go on a steady state for 800 meters, and the last 200 meters, you're just supposed to go as fast as you possibly can. That last 200 meters is a little bit of an out-of-body experience because by the time you get to 800 meters, your whole body is a strange combination of on fire and kind of numb. And so the last 200 meters, when you're basically doing double time, uh, what I had to do is I had to mentally picture my body moving on the rower and not open my eyes because I almost couldn't feel my body. It's it just it's so it just um, tremendous exertion, and it was just so taxing. And when it was over, you know, just trying not to be sick to my stomach and, and kind of collecting myself before the next thing that we had to do. You know, I remember thinking, because this story was in my head, I'm like, you know, man, these guys weren't maybe rowing that hard, but they were rowing for a long time, and they're tired. But Jesus watches and waits. And just like my trainer says, I want you to do this because I want you to get stronger, right? My trainer's not over me saying, oh, at 150 meters, did it get hard? Oh, don't, just stop it. Don't worry about it then. Because my trainer has a larger view in mind. For my trainer, me being happy isn't the highest. That's not the priority. It's not for me to be happy. It's for me to be stronger and fit for my mission. And that's what I think we see Jesus doing here. He watches and waits, and then he goes out to them. Last week, we talked about Jesus is not just feeding thousands of people. He's, Mark says he's feeding 5,000 men. He's building an army. He's building a legion. That legion's going to have to be trained in the ways of Jesus. And we see Jesus training his generals and his army, so to speak, here. If we're going to go into the world and bring Jesus' love to bear, his truth to bear in the world, then there's lots of mu- muscles in us that are weak. Lots of spiritual muscles, relational muscles. Most people don't come into the kingdom fit when it comes to love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. That's a muscle that you have to work at and strengthen. Most people don't come into God's kingdom and they're fit to forgive. Not just seven times, but 70 times seven. Those are muscles that sometimes God lets us go move into situations that are challenging so that we're forced to kind of get stronger as a result. We have to develop perseverance and faith and hope and resiliency and fortitude. That's critical for God's character formation of us so that he can use us. So about the fourth watch of the night, after this struggle, it says he went out to them walking on the lake. Now this is a really important point because in Job 9.8, it says that speaking of God, God alone stretches out the heavens and it's God alone who treads on the waves of the sea. So when Mark says, yeah, he walked out into the lake, our first thought is, oh, that's amazing because human beings can't do that. And Mark is trying to up the ante to someone who understands the larger context of Scripture and say, oh, that is true. Jesus is human. He's fully human, but he's also fully God because only God can tread upon the waves of the sea. Walking on water is something that only God can do. And so when Jesus does this, it's not just, hey, a neat trick. It's very symbolic. So when you hear people on the Internet in your school, in your workplace, in casual conversation. Jesus never said he was God. Well, in that kind of blunt, direct, um, very simplistic way, I might agree with that person. But 
not when you understand how Jesus chooses to communicate and reveal his glory. Because most of the time what he's doing is he's showing people he's God. He will come very, very close to saying, I am God. But that, you know, that, word, that, that phrasing, I'll, I'll grant it to people, doesn't really show up in the New Testament. But to read the New Testament and say, Jesus never said that, he just, and therefore he just postured as if he was some kind of prophet or good teacher or good example, you are just blind to what the scripture is saying because Jesus is showing. When Jesus goes to people and says, I forgive you of your sins, no one says, well, he, he technically didn't say he was God. Well, only God can forgive sins. So when Jesus is doing that, he's implicitly and very directly and very confrontationally saying, I'm choosing to proclaim something and do something that only God can do, which leaves you with a choice. Either I am God come in human form, or it's I'm a damnable messenger of Satan who's here to deceive, or I'm just self-deluded. But when Jesus walks in the water, he is showing his disciples in a symbolic way that he's God. And waters in the first century, the sea and the swirling of the sea, and especially stormy seas, those are symbolic in a Jewish worldview of the forces of chaos and evil. And so for Jesus to walk on the water, again, is more than just even just saying, I am God, but I am God's chosen one. I am the Messiah who has come to walk over the powers of chaos and death. These, these powers don't threaten me. I just walk over them as if I own the place. Because he does, right? So he goes out walking to them on the water, and it says he was about to pass by them, or he was about to pass them by, depending on your translation. Again, Mark's gospel is very short. You can just read through these things. But if you are a Jewish reader, or if you're kind of attuned to some of these repeating themes in Scripture, there'll be a little bit of popcorn happening in your mind. Because this phrase, to pass by, or when God passes by, or God is about to pass by, that shows up at really critical times in the Old Testament. And it appears whenever God is about to display his glory to people. In Exodus 33, Moses says, Show me your glory, Lord. I want to see your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see the back of me, but my face you may not see. Elijah has an encounter with God at a mountaintop where the Lord says, Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So when Jesus is about to pass by the disciples, that's a very intentional illusion to the fact that this is, again, the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, who is about to pass by and show these disciples his glory. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They, they cried out in fear, not out to him, they just screamed, because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now if the last two were slightly more veiled, subtle delusions to the fact that Jesus is God come in human form. This one is less so. This is one of those, this gets pretty close 
to Jesus saying, just I'm the second person of the Trinity come in human form, like I am God. Because when Jesus says, it is I, that's challenging to translate. In the Greek, it's ego emai. It is I myself. Why that's significant is in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew scriptures, the name that God gives to Moses is I am, or I am that I am. When it's translated through the Septuagint, so when uh, uh, Jewish believers who were Greek-speaking translated that into Greek, whenever I am is, what they translated is ego am I. And so when Jesus says, it is I, it's not colloquial, like we would say, hey, it's me. It is an intentional hearkening back to, he's calling himself the name of God, that God, when... um, in Exodus 3, when Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and, and say to them, the God of your fathers have sent me. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And in the Septuagint, it's ego am I has sent you. Ego am I. So they scream out and Jesus says, take courage. You know, don't be afraid. He says, ego am I. And these guys know what that means. On some level, I mean, the scripture says their hearts were hard and they still can't, they're not, no one's anticipating God coming in human form. Everyone's anticipating him sending some kind of special Messiah, but that God himself would be the Messiah isn't really on their radar. So they kind of, it's kind of half received, but Jesus is making it clear. You don't have to be afraid because the Lord God is here. It's me. Ego am I, mean, ego am I it means I am, or I am that I am. In Deuteronomy 32, God says, See now that I myself, ego am I, am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I've wounded and I heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 41, Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth generations from the very, very beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last. I am he, ego am I, in the Septuagint. Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he, that I am ego am I. Before me no God was formed, and there will be no one after me. Isaiah 51, I, even I, ego am I, am he who who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men, that you are but grass? So three, right in a row, these three symbolic gestures of Jesus revealing the full nature of his glory to the disciples. Now, this next part isn't in Mark. There's a part of the story that is not included in this account, but is included in Matthew's account. So if if you're looking at your Bible, you can put a placeholder here, and you can go over to Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Because there's a little part of this story that's really interesting that uh, Mark omits, and Matthew doesn't. This one will also be familiar to you. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Then both stories continue, verse 51 and Mark 6. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. 
for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Four lessons. That, there's not just four here, trust me. I, I, I called what I had down to four. To, to, to me, which were the most impactful this week. Uh, you could study this passage for a long time. And uh, it, it is, excuse the pun, it is deep waters. So four lessons that struck me this week. Number one, we need to be well-rested in order to see Jesus at work in our lives and in the lives of other people. I think it's really interesting from a kind of human, to understanding how we're made up as human beings, to observe that the disciples, after hours of rowing, they're tired, they're frustrated, maybe they've been bickering with each other, they haven't had a chance to rest. They see Jesus coming to them out in the water, and they're terrified, they think he's a ghost. They, they misperceive the situation. Jesus is really, in a sense, unfolding a miracle, and they, they see a threat. They see something they want to want, run away from, even though it's something that they should be excited about and running towards. And I just think that's a really good reminder that um, if we don't take time, and you can use kind of the heart, soul, mind, and strength, our discipleship model, to, to recognize these are four dimen- dimensions of our personhood that we need to make sure that we're rested in so that we can properly see God at work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people, right? And heart, our relationships. We need to make sure that we have friends coming alongside us. We're helping to carry our burdens, who are lifting us up in prayer, who are, we can just have fun with and relax. Because when that happens, we, our burdens get lifted. We, we see with, it, with a deeper clarity into what God is doing in our lives. Because we're not overwhelmed um, by the hardship that might crush one person, but a th- cord of three strands isn't easily broken. Or soul, you know, we need to have times of just resting in God's presence. Confession, um, praise, worship, individually, but also with other believers. But we need to have times of stillness and rest in God's presence, prayerfully and worshipfully. Otherwise, I think, it's, I think it is hard to discern some of the movements of God in our life. Mind, we need to be saturating ourselves in the Word, getting into the Bible every day. It might be a little devotional. I know some days uh, life can get hectic, but to prioritize time in God's Word and prioritize time in the Gospels. I mean, like, God, speak to me through your Word. And not just to be rushing through stuff, but resting in His Word. And then strength to rest literally in terms of our bodies to make sure that we're getting proper sleep and good nutrition. That's, that's, I think, really important. I think that's a spiritual discipline that God can use. And when you put that whole package together, we're in a better position to see God at work in our lives. When we're tired, when we're frustrated, when we're thinned out psychologically, relationally, emotionally, and spiritually, it does become more difficult to recognize God at work in our lives. And that can create a cycle. It has in my life where I don't see God at work. I presume that God isn't at work. I start getting discouraged. But it all really just stems from the fact that I wasn't really paying attention because I was either too busy, maybe even busy with a lot of really good things. Remember, going a mile a minute. But I'm not taking the time. You know, no one on the boat has the, has the posture of the heart to just sit there for a second and say, I think that's Jesus. Now, again, they're not expecting it, and I expect if someone's walking out on Kootenai Lake towards you, you probably would scream too. But I'm just saying, it's revealing that they all just are terrified. They all 
live, they'll just react in a fearful way. And I think a lot of fear, I think fatigue can lead to a lot of fear. Fatigue can lead to a lot of unnecessary hardship. And I think that's why one of the rhythms that God institutes right away from the start of the Sabbath, work hard for six days, but take a day off from your labor. If and you can get into all kinds of discussions. What does it mean to have a Sabbath? It means at least this. If all of your days essentially look and feel the same, you don't have a Sabbath. There, there should be, one of your days should fall into an uh, unnaturally, supernaturally slower rhythm through which you can pay more attention to what God is doing. If every day just feels like the same day because you're just ripping through your day, you don't have a Sabbath. And so getting proper rest is really important. Uh, number two, it's Peter's chutzpah that opens up the opportunity for him. Chutzpah is a Jewish word that means kind of irreverent daring. I don't know if I ever noticed this before. Jesus doesn't invite Peter to come out in the water. He was about to pass them by. Peter says, if it's you, can I go out in the water? Which is insane. Why would he even think that? It doesn't even, it's crazy, right? I really thought through what would be going through Peter's head other than just like, a daring kind of like, that looks awesome. I, I want to give this a go. Jesus doesn't call him out to him first. Peter asks if he can go out. He's proactive. He sees an opportunity where none of the other disciples do. And what I think is neat about the story is we have no idea whether or not Jesus anticipated any of the disciples being like, hey, can we get out of the boat and join you on the lake? I don't think that was probably in Jesus' mind. But when Peter says, can I come? Jesus is totally like, yeah. Come on. And, and Peter gets the experience of a lifetime. And I just thought, that's a good lesson for us. That even though, as we'll find out, Peter's daring you know, doesn't necessarily end on, on the highest of notes, he gets this amazing experience because he just he took a risk. He took a, a literal leap of faith that seemed absurd. But sometimes in life, you've got to do that. And Jesus isn't flummoxed by that. He's like, that's great, because he sees the heart. He sees Peter's heart. Number three, when Peter focuses on the storm, that's when he sinks. When Peter focuses on the storm, he sinks. Storms in the Bible are a metaphor for all kinds of things that we go through. We go through physical storms, psychological storms, relational storms, storms at school, friendships, jobs, but where you decide to look in those moments and what you choose to fixate on is a huge determinant in terms of how you're going to move through that storm. Are you going to fix your eyes on Jesus or are you going to fix your eyes on the storm? Because when Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and fixates on the storm, he, he looks at the wind, he, he sees and maybe it occurs to him the absurdity of what is happening. And he realizes, oh, I'm really in a vulnerable position. He stops looking at the Lord who can save him. And he starts seeing all the ways this can go wrong. Then he starts to sink. But the inference of the text is if he would have kept just looking at Jesus, he could have walked right out to Jesus. Jesus would have given him a high five. They would have turned around and gotten back into the boat together. Now, I want to be careful that no one's misunderstanding what I'm saying. When we're going through a difficult time or a storm of life, what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus does not mean I pretend like the storm isn't happening. 
That is not what that means. That does not mean I have this health issue, I have this relational issue, I'm walking through this uh, battle in terms of mental illness or some kind of challenge in my life. To fix my eyes on Jesus means I just kind of like um, live in denial. By faith, I'm going to deny that all these hard things are happening and just kind of focus on Jesus in some kind of strange kind of plastic wooden, almost like hypnotic way. That's not what the Bible means. See, when you are fixing your eyes on Jesus, of course, in your peripheral vision, you can see there's a storm. It's not about denying you're in a storm. It's not about minimizing that you're in a storm. It's saying, in the storm, I'm going to continue to move towards Jesus. So I might be scared, but in my fear, I'm going to continue to pursue Jesus. I'm not going to focus on my fear. In the storm, I'm going to focus and move towards Jesus instead of focusing on what's going wrong. I'm not living in denial, but I'm fixating on Jesus' supremacy in the midst of a hostile environment. And I'm learning to do that, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Gathering people around me to help me focus on Jesus. Spending more time in prayer so I can focus on Jesus. Digging deeper into texts that are challenging me to focus more on Jesus. And strength. Serving Jesus more, even though I'm in a storm. You've heard me say this before. I think it's one of the most important insights in the New Testament. A lot of Christians who are suffering through something uh, pull back from serving or giving to other people for all kinds of reasons, but one of the rationale is, well, I'm going through something. I need to get myself sorted out, and then I can help other people from a position of strength. You might be called by God to give out of a position of strength, but we're often called to give out of, out of a position of weakness. You know, Timothy Keller says it, and I think it's a brilliant insight. You know, even though your suffering might be very, very great, you should still serve. Jesus washed his disciples' feet on the way to the cross. If there was ever anybody who could have leveraged suffering to say, I get a free pass from this because you have no idea what's coming down the pipe and how that affects me, it would have been Jesus. But at the height of his authority, at the height of his power, and on the doorstep of... uh, torturous judgment, Jesus still serves. So one of the ways we can focus on Jesus when we're going through hard times is to serve other people. And God can use all of those ways, but it's about fixing our eyes on Jesus. Remember when you're learning to drive and they teach you, 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 um, well, they, they taught, I, I, I'm assuming they have like quality driver education in British Columbia. In Ontario, what they taught is you drive where you look. You know that thing? Young drivers kind of do that. You, know, you, you, don't, you don't look where you don't want to go. You look where you want to go. Because what will happen is if you're looking, unconsciously, your body moves. So if you're about to get into an accident, what you don't do is you don't look at the car you're trying to avoid to avoid the car. You look as far in the other direction to leverage the most amount of your body to get into the direction that you want to go, right? And you know that. No one drives here looking at the ditch and saying, I don't want to drive into the ditch. You don't look because you drive where you look. You look at the road ahead. And this is the same principle here. It's not denying there's danger around you. It's not denying that you're going through some really rocky ground, but I look ahead. I fix my eyes on Jesus. I don't look at the ditch because all that's going to do is when I take my eye off the road, I'm just going to drive myself into the ditch eventually. That's all that I'm trying to say here. And lastly, and I just stole this from John Ortberg's book because it's a good title. Uh, If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. 
If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. For Jesus, faith is revealed by acts, yes, of obedience in the regular everyday life, but also daring attempts to glorify God. That chutzpah, that no one's ever done this before. No one else is even with me in doing this. I just feel like I want to strike out alone and do this, to reach out, to give, to serve, to help. But the way has not been plowed before me. I'm a pioneer. Sometimes we show our faith in Jesus when we're willing to take risks that probably to other people might seem absurd. At least irresponsible. And Peter has this moment on the lake where he experiences something none of us are ever going to experience. He has this moment of kind of transcendent flourishing. Jesus enabling me to literally walk on the waters, to just step right into the storm, both literally and metaphorically, the threat that that possesses. possesses, And I am safe because of him. And he flourishes. And we all kind of want those moments in life. We, We long for flourishing. Humans are grasping at it in all kinds of ways. But I think this story teaches me that you can't prioritize personal safety and expect flourishing. Those tend not to coincide. I can't be constantly taking the route of what will keep me the most safe relationally, what will keep me the most insulated emotionally, what will, uh, what will keep me secure and safe spiritually or financially or in terms of my time or my energy, but I want th- these experiences of flourishing. I-, I want these experiences where God shows up and does these amazing things. I want to have, have these stories to tell those tend not to go together. God's big movements in people's lives are often, metaphorically speaking, saying, I need you to step out of the boat. And when people do, they discover a new kind of flourishing. But that's a risk. It's a risk for Peter to do that. What's, what's, what's the, when's the last time you have taken a meaningful risk as it relates to your faith? Like a real risk. Like it was your stomach, the butterflies in your stomach because you're like, I don't know if this is a good idea. It doesn't seem reasonable, but I feel compelled to do it for God, with God, in response to what God has been putting on my heart, whatever, right? Maybe it's a relational risk. Maybe it's writing a letter to someone you've been estranged from for a long time. Maybe it's extending an olive branch. Maybe it's um, taking a relational step that to this point felt too scary, you're making yourself too vulnerable. It felt too risky. What's the last financial risk that you took? I remember when I was first challenged to tithe, and I was like, nope. And then God began working on my heart over a series of years. And, you know, every step that I took, it felt like getting off of a boat. It seems ludicrous now, but I really, I, there was a point in my life where I was like, oh, I, I started with graduated tithing. So there was literally a point in my life where I was like, God, I'm going to give up 2.5% of my income, but I'm trusting you to provide. This is a huge leap of faith, and I took that leap. And now I'm just like, that seems like such a little baby step. But at the time, that felt like the emotional equivalent of God saying, give me half your income. It's like, what am I going to do without 2.5% of my income? But then you have these walking on water experiences. You have these experiences of God saving you, 
and you're like, oh, this is amazing. I should have done this like 10 years ago. Why did I, why did I hesitate? Where's God calling you to step out of your comfort zone? Spiritually, relationally? Where are you being asked to prioritize a little bit of risk instead of safety in order to see Jesus at work? You know, the stories that move us aren't from people who are super Christians and have it all together. They're usually just regular people like you and me who have simply made the decision and kind of put personal safety on the back burner long enough to say, I'm going to say yes to God and step out in faith. And those are the stories that are inspiring to us, but they're accessible to all of us. They're not for super Christians. They're not for people who know the whole Bible or just make godly, uh, Christ-honoring decisions full through Monday through Sunday. They're available to all the weak and lowly of us and the imperfect and the broken. God just needs someone to say, ah, I'm scared, but I'll totally take this step, God. Where are you being asked to take meaningful risk, to be vulnerable in a certain area? So we've looked at this passage in depth, but I want to pull back and end on kind of getting to the gospel because you see in this story a great picture of the gospel. In its particularities, for sure, I mean, you have the illusion, right, where God says to Moses, I'm going to pass by, no one can see my face and live, but when God actually shows up, it's kind of the opposite, right? He says, if you look upon my face and respond to me, I'll actually not just allow you to live, but give you eternal life. There's all kinds of interesting things and echoes happening in this passage, but just look at the big picture, right? The disciples are in this boat, they're in the middle of the lake, it's a storm, they're desperate to save themselves, Uh, their efforts are essentially getting them nowhere, they're stuck, but then Jesus enters the storm, he steps into their boat, and things get restored, and now they can move forward and find land, and the promised land of the other side, right? Humanity is in a boat, we're desperate to save ourselves, we're in the, the storm called life, this constellation of chaos. We're trying to rescue ourselves through all the powers of our intellect and will and technology, but it's, it's really getting us nowhere. We're treading on water. We, we're looking for ways to rescue ourselves from the powers of sin and death, but our efforts are coming to naught. But then, while we were still sinners, Jesus entered our storm and through his death and resurrection walks on the forces of chaos and says, if you allow me to get into your boat, I can begin to restore things. And he's not going to climb into your boat. You have to invite him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, who invited him into the boat of their life, he begins this process of restoration. And he begins journeying with us towards the promised land. That's what we do whenever we come to Scripture. We always try and say, well, how do we see the gospel in this? That's a, that's a good a place as any dand. Let's pray. God, your word is amazing and it's challenging and it brings to life in us things that need to be brought to life. And I pray this morning it also put to death in us some things that need to be put to death, especially hesitancy or fear or um, an inordinate occupation and preoccupation with personal safety. The older I get, God, I don't know if I can live I, well, I know I can't live with my safety being the center of my discipleship walk. It has to be your glorification. Would you continue to grow me up and to teach me what that means and help us to be people um, who are willing to get out of our boats individually and collectively and then meet us in those stormy waters, those uncertain waters, God, and show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.